I invite you tonight to turn to the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be in chapter 7 as we go back to our series that we left, oh, I guess it's been about two months ago we left this because we had a a couple things we wanted to cover, and then we had our exchange conference or exchange seminar that came up, and we were working our way towards that. But we did not forget Nehemiah, and we're going to go back now and begin to look at the things we see here. And what we have seen throughout the book of Nehemiah is the character of leadership that God is looking for and the way that we should live if uh, we know the Lord is, is to live in a way that we would have influence on others because in reality, leadership is influence. It's influencing others in a way that we believe is important. And if we know the Lord, we should be seeking to influence others towards the things of God. And so in, in Nehemiah's life, what we, see, we, we have seen is uh, there was a problem. There was a, an actual problem that came in the city of Jerusalem there. Uh, Nehemiah was uh, one who lived in captivity and um, he found out that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. And so God burdened his heart to go back and lead the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And we've, we've looked at the opposition that he's faced and the things um, that, that he has overcome with the Lord's help. And we've seen over and over and over again that Nehemiah trusted the Lord with everything he had. At the same time, he gave the Lord everything he had in service to him. It's this balance of, of trusting the Lord with everything we are and serving the Lord with everything we are at the same time. And we have to, we have to do that. That's how we have to go about our lives. And so now we turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. And as you get into the second half of the book of Nehemiah, um, we, we move from the city to the people. And along the way, we've seen some of this crop up, that there's some issues in the people. So we're going to look tonight at Nehemiah chapter 7 and see this idea, the guidance of leadership in the life of Jerusalem. So what we're going to do is we're going to read, uh, I'm going to read, all 73 verses, and then we're going to work through it tonight. And I'm just going to ask, again, that you um, humor me, as this is a list of a lot of names, and I'm probably going to slaughter some of them, okay? Um, I can't sometimes say my own name right. So, But you could just be thankful that I didn't ask you to you know, volunteer to read this tonight, okay? Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 7. We'll look at all the, the, the verses here, then we'll talk back through them tonight. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut them and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station, another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of genealogy of those who had come in the first return, and found written in it, These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity, of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, 
Bigvi, Nahum, and Benai. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. The sons of Pehath, Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zekai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Azgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikim, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ater of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashum, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Heraf, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netapha, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kirjath Jerum, Chephira, uh, uh, and Beeroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,154. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sina, 3,930. The priests, the sons of of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, of Kadmiel, and the sons of Hodeva, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akab, the sons of, of, of sorry, <laughs> Hatida, the sons of Shobai, 138. The Nethanim, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, the sons of Leb Labana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Salmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nicoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Menuhim, the sons of of Nephesheshim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhar, the sons of Basileth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Nezia, the sons of Hadapha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Parida, the sons of Jela, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachereth of Zebaim, the sons of Ammon. All the Nethanim and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And these were the ones who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, 
Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not identify their father's houses nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nikadah, 642, and of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and, called, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them, they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 men and women singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And donkeys, 6,720. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold dramicas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold dramicas drachmas and 2,200 silver minas and that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas 2,000 silver minas and 67 priestly garments so the priests the Levites the gatekeepers the singers some of the people the Nethanim and all Israel dwelt in their cities when the seventh month came the children of Israel were in their cities we uh, that's a marathon okay but we look tonight at these names and we look at these things that we're going to see how each one of these is important to the Lord, uh, that God has preserved it for us to see today, and see what it is that's going on here as we begin the second part of Nehemiah. Let's ask the Lord to bless our service tonight. Father, thank you for bringing us here tonight to worship you. Thank you for giving us your word and thank you for using each part of that word in our lives. And we ask tonight that you would speak to us through these things that we see here. Challenge our hearts. Help us to see the importance uh, of leadership in our own lives. Help us to see the calling that you have placed on us uh, to be um, involved in the work of God through your people Israel and their return to Jerusalem from captivity. And we ask that you would do the work that only you can do in and through us. your name we pray. Amen. Well, oftentimes, the hardest work that we face in life isn't physical work. It's the work of people. You ever found that to be true? It doesn't matter how large your company, your church, your city, your staff, your team, or anything else is. If your people that you're working with aren't on board and ready with the right mindset, then there's going to be trouble. There's going to be issues there as you work through those things. A good leader then seeks to cultivate people as well as the actual work that that he's involved in. Nehemiah faced the same need here in the city of Jerusalem. He has worked with the people to get the walls of the city rebuilt. And along the way, he's had some issues crop up with the people. We've looked at that as we've gone through the study. And so now, as the book of Nehemiah turns to the second half, we see the work he begins to do on the people there. 
And his guidance of the city back to God begins here with leadership appointments and a populating of the rebuilt Jerusalem. And we see here that God's call to leadership and active involvement in his work extends to all of his followers. We're going to see that here tonight in, in the things that Nehemiah puts forth and the, the things that he values. Uh, that, that there isn't a, a, a certain social class or anything like that that God is, is calling from, but yet all of, all of God's people are important to him, and he has a, a role for all of them to play. And so here are the people of Israel who have returned, begun to return from captivity in Babylon. And they're here in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. And now under Nehemiah, they've rebuilt the walls. But um, they have a, an issue. They have these walls for the city, but the city has no people. And what good is the city if there's not going to be people to work in the city, to live in the city, to take care of the things of the city? And so Nehemiah begins this process that God, again, lays on his heart. And the first thing that he does, we see these leadership appointments that he undertakes in verses 1 through 3. And we see, first of all, that there are some certain characteristics of leadership that Nehemiah looks for when he's appointing people here. So as Nehemiah has led the people in an incredible work in the face of hostile opposition, Nehemiah has continued to trust and act for the Lord. And in the end, the people have seen this amazing work. And so as the people, as Nehemiah now begins to rebuild the people as he did the walls, um, now we need to see that, that they... They now exist, those walls exist to house God's people in God's glorious city in Jerusalem. And so now, after in verse 7, the gates are hung, there are very two, two very important appointments that Nehemiah makes. He first appoints Hanani, his brother, and Hananiah to two important posts in Jerusalem. Hanani was to handle the administrative duties of leading Jerusalem while Hananiah was over the citadel or the palace, and that means that he was over the troops that would be there. And so these men really become the, the, the co-chief um, operating officers of Jerusalem. One is in charge of the defense, and the other is in charge of the day-to-day operations of the city. And so these two guys together are going to help make this city function and, and work out. Nehemiah, with his major work on the walls done, now begins to enlist others in leadership. If if you go back through the first six chapters of Nehemiah, there's no such appointments from Nehemiah. He he was there leading the work. That was his job. But now as, as that portion has wound down, as that portion has come to an end where he had to be that guy and, and really the, the guy, he begins to uh, enlist and empower others to lead. And it's an important step in leadership that we be able to enlist and empower others within, within whatever sphere that is. You know, we, we think in context of God's people that they can lead for God as well. But Nehemiah doesn't just choose anyone. You know, sometimes the old joke in the church is, you know, we just need a warm body to do something. And Nehemiah isn't just looking for warm bodies to fill things. Instead, he has these two men with two very specific qualifications. And it makes us wonder, what makes a good leader? What makes someone useful to God's work? And we could come up with a lot of answers. You know, maybe they're a very charismatic person. Oftentimes we think of that when we think of a leader. You know, they, they, they carry themselves well. They relate to people well. 
Maybe that, that they are really good at communicating things clearly, their thoughts, and, and they're good about getting them out there. Or maybe we, we say, well, they need to be able to get along with other people. And we can come up with reason after reason after reason or, or, or description after description of what makes a good leader. And these aren't bad things, and these aren't wrong things, and God certainly uses people with these gifts and these talents. But Nehemiah mentions two things that are most, most important. He says at the end of verse 2, the Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, and the first one we see here, for he was a faithful man. First, these men were faithful. That means that they were trustworthy and dependable. The job of helping lead God's people can't go to just anyone. As I said a minute ago, Nehemiah isn't interested in a warm body. He wants those who will do what is right. And if you want someone who's going to do what's right, you have to look for someone who is faithful. You have to look for someone who is consistent. They had to be able to be counted on to do their job and to take it seriously. And if you remember, Hannah and I certainly had proved this from the beginning of the book. It is Hanani who leaves Jerusalem, who goes on that trip to, to Susa, right? The capital of what is now the Persian Empire and, and, uh, and the winter capital there. And he goes to talk to Nehemiah. He had to be a faithful man to be trusted with such a job. And so, first of all, the first thing that God is looking for and people that he can use in his work is he's looking for those who are faithful. He's looking for those who can be trusted. He's looking for those who will do the right thing no matter what. And the first one is informed then by the second one. Because not only were these men faithful, but it goes on. And it says, and feared God more than many. Faithfulness is informed by how we view God. When Nehemiah looked at these two men... You know what he saw above all else? He saw that they gave reverence to their God. That they viewed God the way he was to be viewed. One who properly fears the Lord will live a life pleasing to the Lord. And when we use that phrase, you know, fearing the Lord, we're not talking about cowering in a corner hoping that he doesn't strike us with a lightning bolt, right? We're talking about a, 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 a proper respect and reverence for who God is and what he says and how, what that means for my life. That's the fear of the Lord. And it's crucial for us that if we're going to serve God, we have to have a fear, a, a proper fear, a proper view of God. This is crucial then for these men as they lead God's people. These men were not Nehemiah. We would all agree that Nehemiah is a fairly effective leader, right? I mean, who, uh, he led a, a rebuilding campaign of a wall and it took 52 days. I'd say that's pretty, that's pretty effective. And so, in fact, Nehemiah is still going to be around and be the governor. And these were enlisted under him to help him get the job done. But faithfulness and the fear of the Lord isn't or are not required of top leaders only. You know, a lot of times we think, well, you know, I, I'm in charge. You know, if I'm not in charge, then I don't need to have the, those qualifications. No, this is, these are people who weren't the top leaders. But yet, they were required to have these things to be true in their lives as well. 
God has not called all of us to be, so to speak, a Nehemiah. He hasn't called and equipped every one of us to be the one making the decisions and leading the way of God's work. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want to use us. And it doesn't mean we get a pass in our own spiritual lives. Those who are in what we may call higher positions of leadership don't get a pass in how they're to live for the Lord. They can't get full of themselves. They have to continue to to follow God. And those who may not have as much responsibility also don't get a pass in those things. God expects the same things out of his servant. And as Jesus said, to whom much is given, much has been required. If you want God to use you to make an impact on other lives, you need to develop godly character like these men had. Their character was defined as being faithful and fearing the Lord. In the context of today, if I can just very simply put it in today's context for you, your local church needs you to make a difference. Your community needs you to make a difference for the Lord. You know, your, your, can I speak very personally? Your pastor needs you to step into roles and fill them within a church. Do you have the character to meet that role? Because again, if we want to do things for the Lord, we don't just stick warm bodies in places. We, we seek to cultivate leadership. And so we in our lives have to be following him in these things. Are you faithful to do the things of God that he has called you to do so that you can serve without hesitation? But sadly, most churches, you will find that most people sit on the sidelines in a church. They are content to be apathetic and uninvolved unless someone comes along with the Christian cow prodder and moves them into action. Or, They're content with minimal involvement so it won't soak up too much of my commitment. But God is looking for faithful servants who are consumed with him and consumed with making a difference for him. And these two men that Nehemiah, he appoints, he um, he gives to them specific directions for what they're to do. We see the charges of leadership that he lays on them in verse 3. Because just because the walls are done and the gates are hung does not mean that the enemy has turned tail and run away. You know, oh no, they put the gates up. What are we going to do? I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to wait till the gates are open. And they're going to bring around their own, their plans once again. They will still make runs at infiltrating the city if they're given the chance. We know from the end of chapter 6 that the sworn enemy of God's people, Tobiah, has some sympathizers by way of marriage within the city. And so Nehemiah tells these men to be very careful with the opening of the gates. They are to open them only when the people are on full alert. And they are to shut them when adequate protection is available. They are to take great pains to guard God's city. And so as As these things are set in place, Nehemiah then sets out on the next important goal, not only to appoint leaders in the city, but to bring people into the city. And so the bulk of this chapter is taken up with what we read there tonight in the list of the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. This goes from verse 4 all the way down to verse 69. And thankfully for you and me, we're not going to read that again. 
but we're going to talk through it. And we see that there's a goal here of repopulation of the city. The city is ready for inhabitants, but that's exactly what is missing. And it's vital that the city of Jerusalem be repopulated in the plan of God. Because God's promise to Abraham still rings in the ears of God's people here. What did God promise Abraham? He promised Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. And in Nehemiah's day, that promise has not yet been fulfilled. Because at the time Nehemiah is alive, there is no Messiah who's been born yet. And so God brought his people yet again out of bondage, which they were subjected to because of their sin, and restored them to their land. And now they must continue to show who they are as a part of God's plan. So God prompts Nehemiah to register the people there in the city. And it was important to know who these people were. Ever since the time of the patriarchs, the purity of God's people was a primary thing. You had to know your lineage. You had to know your descendants. And in fact, you look in the, in the patriarchs in Genesis, and the, and the patriarchs of like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I mean, these men are very specific. They're not to take wives of the Canaanites, of the people who live in that land. They're to go and, and, and have a very specific place there to go to, to establish their families. And God tells the children of Israel not to intermarry with the people of the land as they come in from Exodus, but, but the, the purity of God's people is important. These people in Jerusalem that Nehemiah is registering are a bridge. They are a bridge from the, ca- from the time before the captivity to the time of the Messiah. And so Nehemiah locates the record of past returnees. You can find this list also in Ezra chapter 2. And if you were to compare those lists, you would find there are some differences in the list and in numbers and sometimes the names. And so, you know, it makes us ask questions. You know, why are there some differences? Well, we we don't know all the reasons, but it's possible that recordings of those numbers, yes, it's possible that some miscopied them over the years and, and rewritings. Some of those numbers may not be as precise as the way we record numbers today, that they may have made some adjustments along the way. However, Even if that's the case, um, it doesn't rob the Bible of its inerrancy or its accuracy because God preserves his word. We don't know exactly what happened to that original list if they added to that as people were born there in the land or other things like that. Because that's also very possible here. There were updates and additions over the years. The list of those who initially left Babylon to return to Jerusalem may have been amended as it was needed. And also... Between Ezra and Nehemiah, there may have been some different criteria and thinking behind the list of Ezra and Nehemiah. You have one who's making a list of the people who are returning, and you have another, Nehemiah, who's making a list of the people that are now going to dwell in the city. Whatever the case, we need not worry about about the the little details of all the things we don't know, the, the setting of those things. But with careful consideration, it is understandable to see that there are some differences, the reason why their differences may occur. And now the bulk of the chapter is upon us. So here, as I said earlier, in the numbering of the people is this marathon of names. And I know that you were very thankful tonight we didn't pass out verses like we do in Sunday school for you to read. 
But this is very vital to Israel's history. There's a term that's often used for the United States of America, even today sometimes. We call it the great melting pot, where people come from all different backgrounds and all different areas and and ethnicities. But in Jerusalem, it was important to prove your ancestry, and so these things were recorded. This list highlights once again, too, God's care and concern for his people. As you read through, you know, as you listen through and, or look through all those names, name after name after name after name after name, let this thought that Warren Wearsby said ring through your mind. The important thing is not to count the people, but to realize that these people counted. God knows these people. He remembers these people. He's preserved in his word the names of these people for us to know. And he cares individually for all who belong to him. And this is true not just, not just of God's people Israel. It's true of, our church, of, our, of the church today. Our human ancestry doesn't matter. But our heavenly status does. Only those who trust in Christ for salvation are truly part of God's church. Are part of his family. And so... As we go through this list, we see several categories of those who have returned and those who are present. First, you would come to a list of the leaders. We do not know every person who is listed in verse 7. We don't know everything about them. However, we do know a couple of them. We know this one named Zerubbabel and this one named Jeshua. These, that was the civil and the religious leader who brought the people back under King Cyrus. And if you have heard Zerubbabel and Jeshua before, you may know that Haggai and Zechariah were key prophets during the time of the people's return under Jeshua and Zerubbabel. And then from verses 8 to 38, there's laymen that are mentioned. This list includes families as well as the towns that they settled. And unsurprisingly, this is the major part of the listing. I mean, this is the bulk of the people that are going to make up the area are these who who work and do these things. Next, in verses 39 through 42, we find the priests. And we find there there are listed just over 4,000 priests listed. These men were incredibly important in the life of Israel because they led the worship of God and they were descendants from Aaron, Moses' brother. They would staff the temple. And if you remember, the temple has already been rebuilt by this point. So they need to be able to to staff it to worship God. Fourth, after them, in verses 43 through 56, you had the group of the Levites. And they assist in the service of the temple. It is astounding that in these verses, to only see 74 that are generally listed. Well, some will follow in specific groups. Well, here are these men who would come and they would assist the priests and they would assist the people there in the, in the worship of God. The singers, that's one of the specific groups that are mentioned. They assisted in the temple worship. The gatekeepers, those were appointed back in verse 1 and the, because the security of the temple and the city were both vital things. Fifth, you come to this list of people in verses 46 through 56. They're referred to the Nethanim. The Nethanim are temple servants. They are assistants even under now the Levites. If you remember, I mentioned this uh, last or two Sundays ago. On a Sunday morning, I mentioned 
um, when the Gibeonites came to Joshua and they, and they um, deceived him. They didn't listen to the Lord, but they, they, they looked at the bread, they looked at the shoes, they looked at the things there. This is where that group comes from. The Nethanim come from the, the Gibeonites had been those who had served the people in this capacity under the Levites. Now, we get to this point, we don't know if they've been incorporated by circumcision into the nation or if it's just another group of the Levites or how that works now. Then you get to the sixth group. In verses 57 through 60, these are descendants of Solomon's servants. And this group is tied closely to the previous group, so it's possible that these men were also um, Levites or, or, or other people like that. And the total listed in verse 60 goes with all of these, these groups here. And then you get down to this list in, in verses 61 through 65. There's those with questionable ancestry. That includes both laymen, and it's interesting, it includes some priests as well. Again, the purity of the nation is emphasized, especially when it comes to leading the worship, because God had been very specific about who was to lead the worship and who was to minister in the tabernacle. So if you didn't know where you came from, you couldn't prove where you came from, they couldn't put you in, the, in those places of service. And this, so what they did is they deferred a decision on these. They, they, they talk about the Urim and the Thummim. These were, um, it was a sacred casting of lots that was used to determine the, 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 the will of God on some of these things. It was something that God had set forth, and it was these little stones that they would use, and they would carry by the priest. So Nehemiah, after listing that, then he rounds out the list with the totals and the additions of the servants, the singers, and the animals. And it's interesting, right? You see all the animals included? I mean, what's the big deal with that? Remember, the Jews are a very agricultural society. So that's a big part of their life. And so here, you know, here's the work. This is the work now. This is the people. This is the ministry that Nehemiah has before him. He has these people that have come back into this city, and this is the the bridge. This is how we're going to get from... The, the, the time of Solomon, right? You had Saul and David and Solomon. And then you have the, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Um, and then you have the northern kingdom of Israel goes into captivity in 722. And in 586, you have the southern kingdom goes into captivity. And then they're in captivity for all those years. And now they begin to come back. And you, you begin to wonder, where, where are things going, right? And the prophets are coming and they're talking about the Messiah. But you still have, you know, about 400 years before Jesus will come. How are we going to get there? This is how we're going to get there. These people are how we're going to get to the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. This is the bridge. That's why this group is an important group. And now with the people recounted, the work is furnished to continue. Because the last thing we see in this chapter tonight is the legacy of provisions that is left. There's some funds that are provided here. Now, some of these things recorded are recalling of some past giving. But it also seems that Nehemiah, as the governor, has given to the work as well. And as you read these, these lists of the things that are given, there's some really large numbers here. There's some big, some big gifts that were given to the work of God. And it shows the importance of giving to the work of God. Throughout 
Israel's history, God called on his people again and again to give. He talked to them about what they were to give um, when they built a tabernacle and the things that were needed and how he called on his people to provide those things. And they did. They brought happily these things to the Lord. So these provisions that these people were giving, they weren't just for everyday social life in the city, though some of them would be. There was also provision made for the temple and its worship and activities. And this was just as important as the day-to-day stuff, if not more so. It's amazing here to to see the things that are here. And and again, this is such a legacy that's left behind (coughs) that these people gave to the work of God. Because God has given us, even in our day and age, the opportunity to give of our time and our talents and resources towards his work as well. And then we see, as the chapter closes out, this idea that now they're finally here. I mean, they're home. And this, with this, the list is complete. And the other people, and the people begin to return to their homes. This, uh, we see here, is in the seventh month. This will be in September or October by our calendar. Some of them would settle in Jerusalem. Others would settle in other towns. And now the people are ready to be rebuilt themselves. And now the transition of the book of Nehemiah really begins to take shape. The work of God on the city had to be done first. They had to physically establish a place that was safe. They had to physically establish a place that would be separate from their their actual enemies. But the work of God didn't finish when the walls were in place. Because God still wanted to work on his people. And just as God wanted to work on his people then, he wants to work on us today as well. Through Jesus Christ, we can have an eternal security of our soul, but that means so much more than just our eternity. He wants to work on our, in our hearts and our lives every day to cultivate us in our relationship with him. And we see that God's call to leadership and active involvement in his work extends to all of his followers. God is is looking for leaders. He is looking for people who will make a difference for him. And we get this idea that, well, to be a leader, you have to lead a church or a ministry or you have to have some sort of specific or, or particular duty. No, leadership isn't being thrust into service. Leadership is a commitment to doing things God's way and being willing to be used by God in any way he calls you to be used. That's true leadership for him. That's true service of God. And I said earlier, you know, um, about how a lot of times in churches today, you know, there's a lot who are content, right? Just, hey, we're just going to do what we've always done or we're going to, you know, not really be involved. We're not going to... I love... Um, I don't know if I've used this here before, and if I have, I apologize. I love Warren Wiersbe's picture of that. That oftentimes, a church is like a college football game. I know we have some college football fans here. At a college football game, you have 22 men in desperate need of arrest and 80,000 people in desperate need of exercise. Right? And that's not how church is meant to be. Church isn't meant to be, well, 
you know, as long as we got the few people who, who do what they need to do, then it'll just go along. But God's called all of us to be a part of this place. If this, if you, wherever you are, whatever local church God has called you to be a part of, he has called you to be involved, to do the work. Now, your work doesn't limit, isn't limited to a building. Understand that, right? Church goes far beyond the four walls of a building. Church is, is how we live our everyday lives. We're part of God's church. But a local manifestation of that church from the very beginning depends on the faithfulness and the leadership of God's people to step up and do those things. And so very simply, we must all ask ourselves and answer the question, are, are we willing to make this type of commitment to serving the Lord? Are we willing to step up in our local body of believers and do what God has called us to do that we may lead for him? That leadership starts in your own personal life and your own family life and begins to radiate out from there. God knows and he cares for all that are his own. He doesn't neglect you if you know him, nor does he allow those who are not his own into his kingdom or to enjoy true fellowship with him. So if you, if you belong to God, if, if you know him as your savior, Expect to be cared for, expect to be convicted of your sin, and expect to enjoy the presence of God in your life as you walk with him. And let us remember that God's work is the greatest work. There's a lot of things we can do in life. There's a lot of good things we can do in life. There's a lot of things we can enjoy in life, but nothing is greater than the kingdom. And so everything we do in life, from, from going to work, to, to being involved in our communities, to be involved in, in a local manifestation, a local body of believers, it's all about serving the Lord. It's all about His work. So let us prepare our hearts and engage ourselves in this eternal work. And as we go through these things, I mean, I just tell you, if, if, if you hear these things and God works in your heart and he says, hey, you know, I think God wants me to, to serve him in a greater capacity even within Beaverton Baptist Church. I'd love to talk to you about that. This wasn't a commercial message so that we'd have people come forward and get involved in church, okay? But it's a very practical thing we have to think about. How do we serve our God? How do we carry these things out in a, in a way that pleases and honors him? Because true leadership and true service to God is commitment to doing things God's way being willing to be used of God in any way he calls us to be used. And that we will find the truest joy in him. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you for bringing us here tonight to hear from your word. We pray that you would use it in our hearts. Would you drive its truth deep within us that we may be convicted by it, challenged by it to grow and to change. Lord, we ask that you would make this place in Beaverton Baptist Church a place that isn't just a place we come and, and spend time with our friends. It isn't a place where we um, come and, and just uh, turn in our, our service to you, our time to you, but we, it is a place where we genuinely can be involved in making a difference for you and being equipped to do so. And finding brothers and sisters in Christ who would long to have us serve with them as well. Lord, we ask that you would help our church to be a light in our community, to make a difference in the lives of others. And may we give you the honor and the glory and the praise for all we say and do. 
Be with us as we go forth now into a a new week ahead of us. We ask that you would help us to take these things with us, that you would uh, speak to us through your word again and again this week, that you help us to spend personal time with you, that we may know what you have for us to do. And may we do so, and may we continue to live out that life for you. In your name we pray. Amen.